Welcome to our podcast here at Hope United Church. To access the live stream of our services, along with other resources and information, please visit www.hopeunited.org.uk. Here, uh, because we're uh, expositing John, we're not going to just focus on Peter, although it's very hard when we're in this section, uh, this section takes up, and listen, the, the title, I, I called it The Empty Tomb the last time, and I was ready to call it The Empty Tomb again, and I thought, no, I've said that before, so it's simply called The Resurrection of Christ, it's the heading in John MacArthur's uh, uh, page, rather than trying to come up with something fancy, uh, the reason always we want to just make a simple title is, I just want to find it easy, I want to be able to find what we're talking about very easily, uh, so here we are at this section. We've had a busy weekend church, I think. We had a prayer meeting, which, you know, I know is a blessing to us on in, in Tuesday. And then the women met uh, in the fourth part of the Beatitudes on Wednesday. So it feels as if you've been in church more or less, less chance to be bad. It's just, it's just a wee bit less chance. You've not just been as bad this week. I bet. No, it's not that I've not been great. I've just known as much time to be as bad as probably uh, what it is. I used to see this when women go to conferences and they would be like in conference for three days and and, and that was a pragmatic conference and they still could remotely look godly. Uh, and they would be at the conference and go, oh, this is amazing. I say, I know, but you've had less chance to be bad. You know, you're, you're in church, you know, and you think of these people in the first century church, they... They, they sold their possessions and they dwelt amongst themselves and they had all things in common and they devoted themselves to the teachings and the doctrines. Their whole life was took up with serving Christ and loving Christ and devoting their life to Christ. And, you know, uh, I'm sure, you no, know, we're living in a different era where that's not the case. So I suppose the challenge is, is how can we live like that as much as possible in a world where we need to work? Uh, you need to deal with unbelievers, apathy and a million and one things that goes with it. So uh, it's good that we've been in church and I know the women are getting a great benefit uh, from the Beatitudes. And really, you can see the Beatitudes everywhere. I, I, I think if you look through the Gospels, the Beatitudes is everywhere in the Gospels, even in this section as we come to uh, this morning. And the most important event in Christendom is the resurrection of Jesus. There's no more important event in the life of a believer uh, and here in 20 we see the resurrection of Christ and then as he appears as the resurrected Christ to uh, these men who still seem to be somewhat they're astonished they, they, they can't seem to grasp it even even though they're there and they'd been with Christ for three years and uh, he'd, he'd continually told them, as I, I, you, you'll see as I, I, I read my notes, that he continues to tell them that uh, he will rise again and he, he, he will, he will uh, ascend and uh, the grave won't keep him. And it still seems to be that their belief systems and their mindsets, they just can't seem to kind of fathom it. Calvin writes, as the resurrection of Christ is the most important article of our faith, and without it, hope of eternal life is extinguished. And truly, without the resurrection, Christ really died in vain. Um, it is but a good story. And really, 
we, we celebrated that a few weeks ago and I, I never really went into the whole John 20 or uh, the end of Luke or, or, or the Gospels where we went into depth of the, the empty tomb uh, for the simple reason is I, I was wanting to connect with um, predominantly unbelievers that time, know that the, the resurrection is not important, but it's hard sometimes to get into detail uh, in that time. So we never really went into it. So we're getting into it kind of a couple of weeks later. Uh, uh, without the resurrection of Christ, then it's, it's, it's a good story. It just ends there. 1 Corinthians 15, 14, uh, Paul writes to the church in Corinth, and if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and our faith is also empty. Two verses later, in verse 17, and if Christ is not risen, our faith is futile. Futile, it's, it's hopeless, it's without reward, it's without results. And we are still in our sins. That's what happens without the resurrection of Christ. He's a man who died and lived a great life and he's a great example. Well, created many miracles, yes, but that's all he is. And... That does not lead us to eternal life. Let me read the first section then, which cover. It's hard to hear in the first 10 verses. It's normally for us to go through 10 verses in one sitting is a lot. Uh, well, it's a lot for me anyway. Uh, sometimes I see guys, I'm like, how are you going to get through 23 verses? But anyway, everybody at their own, how they do it. For me, it's very hard not to get through 10 verses because it's every line leads on to another and, and, and it would leave a, a, a problematic stop or not problematic, it would just seem unfurnished. So uh, I might get through the 10 verses. My notes have got through the 10 verses. That doesn't mean to say that I will, because um, what I've just said in the first five minutes is no in my notes for a start. So I don't know that uh, we will, but I'll do my best. Uh, John 20, verse 1 to 10. Now, in the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early. Well, it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciples whom Jesus loved. We know that's John and said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where we have laid him. Peter therefore went out and the other disciple and were going to the tomb, so they both ran together. And the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen cloths lying there. Yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying uh, with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who came to the tomb first went in also and he saw and believed for as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again to their own homes. Praise God for the reading of his word this morning. Uh, let me read verse one again. On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Now we know from the Gospels that Mary wasn't alone. We actually know from the verse, the next verse, it says we don't know where he's left them. So sometimes people say, why is it the, the, the Gospels? Some say that she was with others and John just states that it was Mary. 
Uh, you don't really need to read the other Gospels to know that she wasn't alone, that there were others there. Uh, James's mother was there. Uh, Joanna was there. Uh, Cole, mother of Colpas was there. There are a few there. There, there. there are a handful of the women there. Not Jesus' mother. Uh, she wouldn't have been there. She was in John's care by this point. Uh, it says, doesn't it, in chapter 19 that John took her home from that time. So she's already with John. Uh, so, but we know from the next verse that it says we don't know. So we know that uh, Mary Magdalene's not alone. So that kind of balances in the, 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 the Gospels together. And we know from other Gospels that... Uh, uh, anyway, but that... But John who wrote this Gospel last, as always we say a lot, John, this is the last Gospel wrote. Uh, we have said many times that John doesn't feel the need to mention things that's not already been mentioned. So he doesn't feel that he needs to add their names or elaborate in every detail. Others, although he captures some detail. These things are written, which comes at the end of verse chapter 20. These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is uh, the Son of God and you'll have life in his name. And John, as we know, is coming from this heavenly perspective of who Christ is. But A.W. Pink highlights something. I think it's, it's a great point. Uh, by saying it wasn't uncommon for John to mention only one name because, as Pink says, it is characteristic of this fourth gospel to present individual souls to our notice. He then adds an example, Nicodemus, the woman at the well, the blind beggar, etc. We could name others. However, I do, I do think that, that Pink uh, is drawn in... Uh, an important point here is to individualise people in John's writing, these type of uh, evangelical writing, it draws the person into kind of individuality in a good way. Uh, so that we would maybe bask, as Pink says, in his presence. It personalises a lot because he kind of hones in on an individual person when talking about the event rather than generalizing. So the woman at the well, he hones in on an individual person. The man at the pool, the individual person. And here Mary Magdalene, he's kind of honing in. Uh, she was probably the leader of the women at that time. But it, it kind of makes Jesus, in a sense, accessible. He's making it accessible to everybody. Uh, and I think I think we need to do that. I was talking to somebody, I was been thinking about stuff this week and I was talking to someone yesterday and I was just saying about some of the posts and some of the stuff that I see, not just in Reformed Church, but even in this church. And I think, if I was looking at some of the posts through the eyes of an unbeliever, I don't think they would have a clue what you're talking about. And I think often what happens is, is that we, you know, we almost see it as, let me just say, just just say it categorically here. Uh, you're, if you're sending posts, and listen, it's not about sending posts on social media. It's just another way to connect with people, okay? But it's not an academic citation, okay? It's share what you know, okay? There's an element of that that's okay. But you have to sometimes in mind when we write stuff and send stuff that you're thinking about the unbeliever who doesn't know anything. And I think you need to have the balance then with that. Sometimes you look at stuff, probably we would even send stuff and somebody's on the church and say, I don't even know what that means. 
No, and that's to believers. And if you look at much kind of posts and uh, different stuff that you would see for the Reformed Church that they write, you you definitely would look at it and go, there is no way that an unbeliever is going to even remotely comprehend what that's talking about. So therefore, it's only beneficial to already believers to give them more knowledge. Uh, and I think we can overdo religious posts. And as I say, I was speaking to somebody about this and they said the same. They said, so I was thinking about that. And I've been thinking about it for the last week or so. You know, that the, it, it somehow can make Jesus somewhat unaccessible. And I don't know that we think like that. We don't, we want to stand what we know. And you're thinking, that's great that you know that. But it almost makes Jesus unaccessible. Yet, as we see here in John's writing, as John is, because he's individualizing people's lives a bit, he's, he's making Jesus very accessible, if you like, to people. In fact, if you read John's epistles, no, which is really just a follow-on for the Gospels, you'll see how he writes as well. It makes Jesus very accessible. Uh, I'm all for wisdom, sound doctrine, uh, but we must also think of them that, that do not know Christ. No, we, our, our doctrine has to be sound, sola scriptura. We understand our Calvinistic views and values, the doctrines of grace, and they're all a given. But we have to be wary that we don't get so caught up in that that we think, no, because you can get so, oh, well, election. People will get saved if they get saved. You know, and we forget to do the work of the evangelist at times, I believe. And I think John here is, and Pink is kind of highlighting that to an extent. Uh, we know that's the bedrock, the, the doctrine, and we know that foundation can't be moved. But, you no, know, I was talking to, to, to the, some of the youth guys and we've, we've changed some things and we'll get a chance to pray about that at our next prayer meeting. And one of the things I was saying is, is you have to remember that we want the youth, we have to remember that they're still young. So the doctrine has to be sound and what we teach has to be sound. But see everything else around about it. It can be very relaxed. And sometimes what happens is everyone becomes rigid and you start thinking, you start thinking, I could not possibly invite an unsaved person here. That's what you start thinking. I could not possibly invite an unsaved person here because I'm struggling to get it. I, I'm, I'm not even on board that never mind somebody who's unsaved. And it can give us a mindset Anyway, that's just a thought. No, so I would say, try and have a balance. Don't, no. Sometimes I read people's posts and I sometimes go, thanks, you're amazing. Thanks for sharing how much you know. You know, and it's like missing the point a bit. Anyway, here in this section, we you know John really hones in and, 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 and the woman called Mary, who's, so faithful, and I think uh, here John is only mentioning Mary for that reason, but also she's probably the leader of the other women. And Mary who, Mary Magdalene, or Mary from Magdala, Magdala is in uh, Galilee, north, uh, northwest, I know all that stuff, the northwest. Uh, you can go and visit Magdala, where she's from. And I suppose like Mary, the mother of Jesus, I don't know that there's a worse represented woman in the Bible than Mary Magdalene. Uh, a shockingly misrepresented. I think from about 
the, the third century, uh, they started to write that she was the prostitute, she's the woman caught in adultery, she's this, she's sinful. And she's been so misrepresented in history. I think it just shows you the level of gossip we can have. No. Even if she was a woman caught in adultery, which she wasn't, she certainly doesn't make her a prostitute because she was caught in adultery. But she wasn't even caught in adultery. So she was none of these things, but people have just misrepresented her. Uh, we have no record of Mary Magdalene being this wicked woman. What we do know is, and this is all we know, and this is all we need to know. She was a woman that was healed of many demons. Luke 8, 1 and 2. Now it came to pass afterwards that he went through every city talking about Jesus and village preaching and bringing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God. And the 12 were with him. And, and certain women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, out of whom had come seven demons. Whatever this woman had, she was healed. Uh, we could probably guarantee that this woman had a lot of mental issues, seven demons. She had a lot of mental hang-ups, uh, a lot of troubles, definitely, in her life of various kinds. However, we can't conclude at any point that she was a prostitute or a woman caught in adultery. And also... We can't conclude that just before that in John 7, that she's, um, Luke 7, that she's the woman who washed Jesus' feet. We can pretty much conclude that she's not any of them. She's simply this. And this is what we feel. We want to add stuff to people's lives to make it more colourful, don't we? To make it more... You, know, you ever hear people talking about their, their, their... You call it evangelistic. No, they share their testimony and they like to add stuff or they share something that God's done and they like to add a bit more mystery. We don't need to add anything to God's word. In fact, the minute we do, I think we miss the simplicity and we miss the true love and compassion that Christ has on people's lives. She was a faithful woman who the moment she was healed of her seven demons, whatever they were, mindsets, mental health issues, all sorts of stuff that was going on. The moment she was healed, she lived the rest of her life in total devotion to Christ, completely and utterly as a servant. She followed him, we know that. She followed him, she gave up what she had, she followed him and she used what she had to serve him. Uh, no fanfare, no limelight. Just served them with all she had. She was the one at the foot of the cross. In fact, you could say that she was the last one to leave. She was the last one to leave the cross and the first one to turn up at the tomb. You could say that. She was at the tomb the night before along with Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus, Helpman Bam, Jesus. She was there. And we now see she's the one walking towards the tomb in the dark. So she's rose so early, probably no slept. Probably no slept. She's rose early. Even though it's the new day, she wouldn't be able to go out before that. She's adherent to the law of the Passover. But as soon as dawn breaks, it's still dark, you know, it's not quite light. 
You read that this woman gets up and she starts making her way back to the tomb. However, what is amazing, also as well as, no, we, we also know that uh, she's the first person to meet the risen Christ as well. That, that'll be in a couple of weeks. This woman, like Mary, the mother of Jesus, has been misrepresented because we, we miss out on the simplicity of this woman's amazing devotion and faith. And I think this is what we tend to do. We either elevate I think what we've done with Mary, the mother of Jesus, we elevate her to this supernatural status, which we tend to do, or we diminish them, the Mary Magdalene. I think that's a common thing that you even see today. You elevate women to superstar status, or you diminish them to nobodies. It seems to be that. It seems to be the. I mean, nothing's really changed two thousand years later. No, we've got we've got Mary, the mother of Jesus, is. Is, is, is above Christ. And then we miss out in the women's mourning, what we spoke about. And then you've got Mary Magdalene, a simple servant who we've diminished to a nobody. The most beautiful perspective we see of how to measure women is a perspective for Christ. A biblical perspective for women is the right perspective. We've got all this stuff changing now, haven't we? I don't want to get into it. Where we've got, we've got this right and that right and women here and women. Jesus is the greatest emancipatory woman. Really bringing freedom and placing them in their, their rightful place. And nothing honours women more than seeing them from a biblical perspective. This woman's one of the greatest examples, therefore, a faithfulness and servanthood. Uh, we know, as I said, she was at the tomb the day before. She then departed that evening with Nicodemus and Joseph. They would have departed as it was the Sabbath, and the, the Passover Sabbath at that. And then she arises early in the morning and starts coming to the tomb. J.C. Ryle writes, Let us note Mary's courage and zeal to honour her buried Lord. Not every woman would have dared to go outside the city while it was still dark to a grave, especially during the Passover feast when many strangers would be sleeping under any slight set shelter near the walls of Jerusalem, end quote. And you think you that there would have been maybe a million people there, people everywhere. Now, it's no, it's no common for women to go up um, when it's night or early morning, dark, and start walking through Jerusalem towards the tomb. That would not be common. That would be a dangerous thing to do. Uh, for many things, not just, no just, no, no just physically dangerous, but for laws and all different stuff that went with it. Uh, especially where women were placed in that stage, in that, that, at that time, how they were valued. Uh, how lowly women were placed those days. So he dared he venture out into the dark before it was fully light in the Sabbath. Uh, shows that this woman was driven by amazing love. Um, we, we think of that verse in, in Luke 7, truly them who have been forgiven much, what? Love much. And she's really living out the four Beatitudes, this woman, by this point. She's hungering, thirsting for righteousness because she's tasted and she knows her own brokenness. Uh, and she knows that nobody but Christ could heal her 
saver, nobody loved her like him. To this point, and she's up at the crack of dawn to run again to the tomb. She can't bear, think of this, she can't bear a moment without being there. Jesus, you cannot bear. You can just imagine she's no slept. You know that when you're excited about something or, or you're distraught. She's not even slept. She's like, I wonder if I can go now. She's probably like, I, 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 is it early enough for me to go now? Is it, oh, Jinky could go now. You know, like kids at Christmas time and they're like, Jinky could go up now. It's half two in the morning. Jinky could go up. It's nearly, I mean, it's nearly day. You know, it's nearly half two. should be all right. You know, and she's got that going on. But it's no from a, an excitement but from a deep mourning. She just cannot bear the thought from the moment she was healed. She was never out of Jesus' sight except when he was where the disciples then stuff but she was not permitted. It was almost illegal to go out. But here she is. The woman's devotion totally unsurpassed. She just cannot wait to be close to Jesus. She's no understanding at this point. So, she's no understanding of the resurrection whatsoever. None of them do. But she still wants to be close to his graveside. Think of that. Think of that, brothers and sisters. Think of that, brethren, that how much can we lie back and procrastinate? How little time do we even make the effort to meet the living Christ? We don't even make effort to meet the living Christ. This woman is doing all she can just to be near a dead Jesus. She's risking everything to just be next to what she thinks. She's no other way thinking otherwise that she's risking everything just to be close to a dead Jesus. And yet we can't sometimes even rise to be next to a living Christ. Yeah, I know we could start saying that, but he lives in you. You get my point. And it tells us that she was a woman who lived knowing that it was only truly Jesus that loved me. It's only Jesus that could heal me. It's only Jesus that could redeem me. It's only Jesus that could restore my mind. It's only Jesus that can make me well. It's only Jesus that can fully accept me in my totality. She's thinking, oh, I need to go quickly to the grave. I just need to be near him. I just need to be near him. Do we think that? I just need, I just need to be close. I just need that intimacy. I was wondering when I've been studying this, if, if Jesus placed her so favourably be, because he knew the world. I'm not saying he has, but it makes me think that I wonder if Jesus placed her so favourably because he knew the world would absolutely lambast her for the next 2,000 years and place her in such a pathetic, lowly place. Who knows? Anyway, as Mary arrives at the tomb, no doubt she wasn't arriving with any excitement. Just with a mourning heart. Yet, as I said, she would rather be near a dead Jesus than a world where he is not. And as she approaches, she sees the tomb and it's opened. She's distraught. She thinks he's been stolen. That's her first thought. He's been stolen. He's been stolen by thieves and robbers. 
Her, 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 her whole life was to bits. She's distraught. Her heart's even now more broken. Think, think of this, think of this, how she's thinking. Think of you, your most loved one and you've just buried them. You've just buried them hours before. You go and try and get a couple of hours sleep, you can need to get back down. You're not letting go, you're struggling. You're, you're mourning, you're distraught, your life's fairly bits. And you, got, you run back to the graveside and it's been robbed. It's gone. Thank you. Just, just, just even remotely, if you can, that's almost impossible, isn't it? To get your head around that, what you would think. No, it's only people that love that can actually even comprehend what that would be like when they've lost somebody that they truly love and you go back to the grave and you think they're not there. Thank you what you would be going on through your mind. She doesn't even go in. She's, she's obviously seen it for a bit of a distance and she runs back to Peter and John. No, the other women, incidentally, and it tells us in other Gospels, which you'll not get into, they would have stayed, so it's easy to marry up the Gospels. They would have seen the angel. They didn't go back. They stayed. They went up to see the angel. That's how you marry that up, if any of need to know that. John 2, uh, verse 2. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we, there's the we, we do not know where they have laid him. We see again this close bond with John and Peter. It's just inseparable, isn't it? They just seem to be, wherever they are, they're, all, they're always together. Whatever's happened, uh, we don't know where they were staying, somewhere close by. Um, but wherever they were, they were together. They were kind of inseparable, these men, uh, especially in their early journey. We don't know what happened that night after the cross. And I was thinking about this. And I'm not trying to add anything or take it away. There's, there's things, there's things no written that you know must have happened. So John must have went back. Peter's denied Christ. Think of this. Think of what this conversation must have been like. And I'm getting ahead of myself because, I, and I don't want to, because, see, I'll just need to say it. Peter running makes me weep. Just big Peter, big daft Peter. And I, I don't mean it like that because that's very disrespectful to the, it's very disrespectful to the apostle, but I just, I, I mean that in the sense, and I take that back, I mean that in the sense he's, his brokenness and his passion and his mistakes. Yeah. I don't mean that in a, no, in a disrespectful way at all when I say that, so maybe we need to watch how I say that. But, but anyway, John's went back and they've had this conversation. Now, you know they've had a conversation. Peter's not at the cross. He's watched for a distance. The other disciples, they're nowhere to be seen. They've scattered. So we don't know where they are at the time. They're somewhere around Jerusalem. They, they, they're nowhere to be seen. Uh, they're about somewhere. But Peter's obviously found his way back or John and Peter's met again. And here John and Peter together again. John's been at the cross the whole time. And you just know the conversations. Do you know what happened next? And they're like, and then he said, oh. and then this happened. Peter would have 
been in Jerusalem, obviously close by, so he knows it went dark, so he knows that. But he doesn't know the exact words that Jesus would have said on the cross. He wouldn't have, he wouldn't have been close enough to hear that. He wouldn't have been close enough to, to get the detail of what happened at the cross. So you don't know that night they're talking and John's explaining to him what happened. Because John was a witness. You can't imagine John no telling them, can you? At this point, Jesus' mother is way John. She's probably explained this as well. She's, she's distraught. And he would have shared the words. And then here comes Mary Magdalene running to them, finding them together. She's even more distraught. You know, she said more as well. Oh, they've took him. They've took him. And he's nowhere to be seen. I, I ran to the tomb early this morning and he's, he's not there. And you can imagine, what, what do you mean he's not there? You know, it's not just, all right, he's not there, let's go. It's not that. It's a, what do you mean? They're looking for more information. What do you mean he's not there? Were there, were there no guards there? Were there no Roman soldiers there? What, what, did you get into the tomb? She didn't even get into the tomb. No, she, no I didn't get into the tomb. It was home right away. And they're trying to get information. But she didn't know where they took him. And none of them at this moment had a single thought of the resurrection. Even though the disciples had been with Jesus three years, none of them thought for a minute. They couldn't comprehend at that point the resurrection. She calls him Lord. So she knows who he is. She knows he's the Messiah, but she still can't seem to make that transition in her mind. From man to the son of man or from Jesus to God. She only has a human Jesus. And here's the thing, and we all know this before our salvation, a human Jesus cannot settle your anguish. A human Jesus cannot settle your soul. A, a human Jesus cannot bring a peace to your heart. Just can't. Before I get saved, I believed in Jesus. He was a human Jesus. No resurrected Christ, but he couldn't settle my heart. He couldn't bring a peace beyond understanding. And at this point, she knows not the risen Christ. Really, at this time, Mary's still, if you like, in an unredeemed state. Even though she's been redeemed, she doesn't know it. She does not know it yet. Many people are like that. You know, that people question their salvation. They don't know. And there, has to, there comes a time, sometimes it's time. She doesn't know it yet. She's been redeemed. Christ is risen, but she doesn't know no, there are millions of people going to be saved and they don't know it. Isn't that amazing? There's probably somebody in this room that's going to get saved and they don't even know it. They don't care at the moment. Well, I don't care. Big deal. Don't even want saved. Nothing to get saved from. That's, they'll, they'll think even that. But yet, there'll come a time when they'll know. And Christ will call them and they'll be saved. But not until we know there isn't Christ, will they... Go mourn and really turn to joy, if you like.
Okay, there's really no good place to stop here, so, and we've got time, so, and these verses are joined, however, as we'll see how far we get. Verse 3, Peter therefore went out, and the other disciple, and they were going to the tomb, so they just got, they start running. So they both ran together, another disciple outran Peter, and came to the tomb first. So here they start running. There's no way other to explain why one outran the other other than John was a faster runner. That's it. Oh, no, no, no. No, no. John was simply a faster runner. Okay? People say it was the guilt and the shame that was going on in Peter that made him tarry, made him kind of, made him... I see if that was the case then. Why did he run right into the tomb when he got there? If that was the case, he would never have run into the tomb when he got there. He would have stood back. We find out in the next verse that when Peter, Peter just never stops running. Just never stops, which I love. It's just that John's a faster runner. He doesn't love Jesus more. He's no more special. He's no, he's no anything other than younger. Much younger. He's much younger and he can run much faster. That's it. And, and the reason I'm harboring this is because of what I'm going to just bring this into land and how we, we love to measure things. And I think it's wrong. When I studied this a few years ago and I was getting into my notes, this is what I was captured by, was how John wrote this. And, and you ever hear kids talking and they go, right, we were going along there, right? Right, you usually turn your mum's face or something, like that. and then and then and then and then I started running, right, right, and then and then he ran, he ran by me, right, and then and then we done that, right, you know how kids talk, and then we done that, right, and they're they're all excited, and and John here is is almost he's almost finding it impossible. It seems to me, it seems to me that John is finding it impossible to contain him knowing what happens. <laughs> he knows what happens. John knows what happens as he wrote John's gospel. But it just seems to be at this moment, he can't seem to help himself. No, because he has to write that at that moment, we didn't believe. <laughs> but still he can't seem to help himself. And as you read it, he just cannot seem to help himself get excited and get in the details. Right, we got up, right? And then I was running, right? And Peter was running. Oh man, he can't run. And then I just ran like the clappers. <laughs> and I just went for it. And I'm no kidding. I was at the, I was at the tomb in the time. He's like this. He cannot get away from the joy. And it's almost like he's having to contain himself. And obviously, they didn't believe at the time. But you can tell in John's writing that he knew he was going to almost. Uh, both of them heard Jesus talking about the resurrection, but they never got it. So this running, as some say, I don't believe, and I even quote some that Ryle says, and he mentions excitement. I, I, I don't believe as they were running at that time. John, you maybe capture the excitement as he's writing now. Now, but I don't believe when John was running with Peter to the tomb, there were any excitement. And the reason I don't believe there was any excitement is, is because it tells them they didn't know why. They didn't know he was resurrected. So they've obviously got in their mind, he's just been stolen. Robbers have come in and stole Jesus. They've took him away. Somebody's took his body or done whatever. 
Calvin says that they were almost running with almost no faith. <laughs> they didn't have faith in the resurrection, just almost no faith. They have certainly none of the resurrection. All the work's been done for them by this point. All the work has been done and they're still kind of running blind. And they have just a wee point there. Do you know, all the work's been done for us. Brothers and sisters, you need to realise all the work has been done. All the work has been done. Yet we still run blind. He's risen, but they know not at this time. And this excitement kind of spills out, as I say, as he runs. And I say, as the picture of Peter running, just, I think it encourages all the hope. No, one mistake after the next. I just, it's just a picture. I just think because he's, he's such a huge, he's a big man. He's a, he's a, he's, he's what you would call in this world a man's man, right? He's a, he's a man. He's, he's a masculine man. He's, he's been through the highs and the lows. He's, he's been through so much, and it's just the picture. It's no car. It's just the picture. He just I'm running, just running in the tomb just to get to be near Jesus. It's just, it's astounding to me. And I hope it encourages all to just keep running. <laughs> I know it seems quite pragmatic, just keep running. So John being much younger, arrives sooner. They're probably a, a, a seed of faith in them, but they have no... They've no anything other than they think Jesus has been robbed and John arrives first. John arrives at the tomb first. We don't know how long it was, but he's ran all the way anyway. And he arrives first and he stops. Just stops and he stoops down and looks in. And there Peter, I don't know how many minutes later, puffing and panting. <laughs> you just see it. Yeah, you just picture him running. He's running as hard as he can. And Peter being Peter just as he stops, that's the tomb. John's like that. And Peter just runs right in. I just love that picture of him running right in. He doesn't even stop. Tells you that he's, he's no got this guilt, you know, and what, otherwise he wouldn't have run right in. And it just sums up Peter. This bold, courageous guy just running right into the tomb. And then you see John and outside just being a bit more pensive and just being who he is is just... And, and this, is, this is where we'll bring us into land. None is different. Okay? And, and, and Ryle picks up on this, which is brilliant. And it's so important for us to capture this. Somebody's identify with one person or the other, eh? And, and what happens is we tend to promote that person because we think that that person's got more faith or, or he's more courageous. No, I identify personally with the Peter Akin. No, I'd probably be a bit slower, although I would think I was faster. You know that? No, I, I would start out. No, I can imagine me running with, I'd probably beat Fraser. I better use somebody else. Eh, I, probably, I can imagine me running with Callum and, 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 and me starting off dead quick. Like, I'm out the traps. I'm off. I'm off. No, I've left them for dust. But then I just, I can't run fast. And then they take over and they get there. 
but they're kind of standing back. I can see James just like looking in and me running right by, right in. And, and, and you think that that is better and you start to place that somewhere. And Ryle states for sure it's, it's wrote with these things in mind. I think when John goes into the details, he, he stooped in and looked in and Peter kept on running and ran right in. It's wrote deliberately to, to remind us of something and you could add Mary Magdalene to this as well. He writes this, both we know for sure were deeply attached to our Lord. The hearts of both at this critical, critical juncture were full of hope I don't know if it was full of hope, fear, anxieties, expectations. I'm not sure it was hope and expectations. All tangled together, yet each behave, listen to this, each behave in their own characteristic fashion. And I think it's vital that we know this because in the church world, there's often a type that seems to be more acceptable, a type of faith that's better, a type of person that's better, a type of courage that seems to be better than the other. When other people are slightly more pensive and, and, and they just, their approach to Jesus is different. And Jesus seems to draw people based on the type of characteristic you have. I think we all come to Christ in a way that is fitting to our own character. What's the challenge here? Be very wary, brothers and sisters. And I fell into this trap, I think, because I'm, I'm the one who would run in. I, I, I would cut the ear off. And I think it's easy. I think it's easy to think that anything lesser than that is unacceptable. It's not. And be wary, especially if you're young in your faith, that you start to judge people because they're a bit more passive and a bit more pensive in how they're looking towards Christ. You have no idea how God is moving in their life. You know, your revelation is no their revelation. And, and God has got an amazing way in moving Christ and moving in people's lives and people's hearts based on the characteristic of their life. I could not be more chalk and cheese for my brother in Christ, James Sedwell. We are chalk and cheese. You know, he, much more pensive, much more contemplative. But often what happens is you can you, you, you hijack that and you make it think that there's apathy or they don't care. And it's God's way just moving in people's lives. And this is why John's depicting this. Yes, I was the one that looked in and Peter was the one that went in. But we both love Jesus. We both love Jesus. So for you here who maybe you look at the passion in others and you see that and you go, oh, I wish I had that. I obviously don't have that faith. That's, that is not the case. No, there's Mary's and there's Martha's. You need both. And, it just, and it's the characteristic of the person that will move in the life and Jesus will move accordingly and will look at Jesus and will connect with Jesus and will have intimacy with Jesus and it might just be a bit different. One of the worst things you do is start comparing your relationship with Jesus to other people. You know, in a sense. And I don't mean that in a way that you're looking at your faith and challenging that. 
But I mean, you think, you start measuring how somebody else is intimate with Christ compared to how you're intimate with Christ. Oh. Who's, who's got more faith? Peter or John? Both. You can't differentiate them, can you know? They're just different humans. And Jesus seems to have this, the Holy Spirit has this ability, this wonderful love that he just speaks into somebody's life based on the type of characteristic there and how they think. I want to say this to some of you who maybe think that you've not yet gave your life to the Lord. Don't think that you need to have a, a different mind and have the mind of somebody else in order for Christ to speak to you. I promise you, Christ will enter your world whatever characteristic you have and see the sooner we learn that, the better. Then we, then we stop trying to change people and we just start sharing Christ with them and Christ will meet them where they're at in their way and how they think. Some people say, well, I'm not an intellectual. Well, that's all right. You don't need to worry about that. Jesus will meet, part, Jesus will meet you where you're at. I, I'm not really energetic. Well, that's okay. Jesus will meet you there. And I think this is the point. Rather than value one over the other, judging one over the other. Again, Rayo points this out. We don't all feel things. You don't even feel things the same way. We'll all leave here today and different things will have impacted you. We've all listened to the same message. But you'll all draw wherever you're wired towards. And we don't react the same way. But let's not... I think that's a challenge, don't you think, for us to not allow our mind to go there? Let us not presume when someone doesn't reach you or someone doesn't react the way you react that they're not being equally faithful or they don't desire the Lord either. Never ever, never ever tell an unsaved person be wary of telling an unsaved person they'll say that they better get the finger out and start doing it. Because let me tell you something, see, before you get saved, you've done nothing. So I don't know what the unsaved person's supposed to do that you weren't able to do. Oh. There's not one who's here that done anything to get saved other than the sin that got you there. I think that's uh, Spurgeon that maybe has said that. I don't know who it was that said it. It's one of them anyway. Uh. The only thing, no, it's Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards says, the only thing that you participated in in your salvation was the sin that made you need to get saved. That's it. So I think we need to be very wary that we start pressing people to try and have some sort of fire that you've got. Okay, let me bring us in. John stooped down. Uh, verse 5 and 6, and he stooping down and looking in saw the linen cloth lying there. Yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came forward him and went straight into the tomb. It's just a great picture, isn't it? Just a picture of people's approach. It's just people's approach to Christ. It's not how much they love, just their approach. I don't want to become a stumbling block. Verse 70, 10, and he saw the linen cloth lying there and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded together in a place by itself. Then the other disciple whom came to the tomb first went in also, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again to their own homes. The whole tomb... Peter runs into the tomb 
And, and they say this, that see, see, the, see his clothes. In order to wrap this up, so it's not like Lazarus. Lazarus had to be unwrapped. Jesus didn't need to be unwrapped with his dead clothes. I would say this, he just stepped out of them. That's how it was. He stepped out of them. So see when, see when they begin. See the, see the shape of the body. There's nothing cut. There's nothing ripped. He's just simply stepped out of his clothes. It's, it's astounding. I know it's hard to get your head on. He's stepped out. And they would have just been lying there and they walk in. Now, people say, oh, but they were robbers. Okay, here's a couple of points. And this is, I mean, it's not even an argument here. Firstly, if it was robbers, they wouldn't have left things in an orderly fashion and folded the handkerchief. And let's not read into the folding of the handkerchief, by the way. People are, the, 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 the folding of the handkerchief. The folding of the handkerchief is simply for one thing only. To let you know that it was vo to, to make it void of any manipulation or anything other than Christ who just went over so that John and Peter would look in and go, and they believed. Well, John believed, I'm presuming Peter did as well. But then when John seen it, he believed. And he looks in. And there's the clothes, it's all, it's just sitting there. It's just the shape of the body. I mean, with no body in it. And the handkerchief folded. If it was robbers, they wouldn't have took the, they wouldn't have took the linen off at all because of the, 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 the sense in that would have been worth a fortune. The empty tomb, therefore, is the work of one man, Jesus. And it was totally void any humanistic guidance. It was empty. Void of any, so that nobody could interpret it any other way. Although many have. MacArthur says, Jesus simply passed through the clothes. He just passed through them. The handkerchief folded. Only to give the disciples a full picture what happened if not both would have been folded both would have been folded but Jesus wanted to give the disciples a full revelation or understanding of the resurrection so that the linen wasn't all folded it was the linen was just lying there in the shape of the body <laughs> and the handkerchief folded all the work of Christ stepping out says that John sees the clothes and believed. Sees there's no struggle. No rips. Jesus simply stepped out of dead clothes and folding his cloth, handkerchief. And at that moment, John knew he was resurrected. And then it just simply says this as we close. They went back home. They went back home. They just went back home. What about that? They went back home and the astounding thing is here is there's still a bit of doubt. And we'll get into this over the next week or so. Because they don't tell everybody. They don't go back home and say, oh, we found out this has happened. There must, at that moment, they knew. But somehow they still lacked a bit of faith. Which we do know comes and as Jesus then starts visiting as we get into next week you'll see Jesus coming and meeting Mary. He says her name, didn't he? Oh, see that? He says her name. And she knows. 
just says, Mary. She knows. She knows who he is. And then we know that Jesus, 11 times that he met people, 11 different times met the disciples. Meets James on his own. Doesn't even open the door and walk through and they touch his hands. The resurrected Christ. And eventually these men, these people, they understand it. And their lives has changed forever. And here we are talking about it 2,000 years later. And it's got the same power. Because the same power that conquered the grave is still alive and saving lives today, wherever you are. Whatever condition you're in. Whatever type of character you are. Amen. Thank you for joining us for our podcast here at Hope United Church. If you'd like to get in touch or for any more information, please visit www.hopeunited.org.uk.